from Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Andrew Dillnott will join us to discuss the numbers game. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. Science Show. Well, the news is constantly filled with numbers and statistics, everything from $100 billion bailout packages to the probability of catching some terminal disease. But for most of us, relating such numbers to our daily lives can seem incredibly daunting. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Mr. Andrew Dillnott. Mr. Dillnott is the principal of St. Hugh's College of Oxford and was the director of England's Institute for Fiscal Studies. He was also the presenter of the BBC Radio 4 show, More or Less. His new book, co-written with Michael Blaslin, titled The Numbers Game, The Common Sense Guide to Understanding Numbers in the News, in Politics, and in Life, explores the world of numbers for a general audience. Uh, Mr. Dillnott, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, well, it's really our pleasure, and I, th- I think this is really a very fascinating book, uh, The Numbers Game. But I'm curious, how is important in understanding the numbers in the news for the uh, average uh, person? I think it's it's just vital. I mean, numbers are everywhere. From from when we first wake up in the morning, we set our alarm clock using numbers. We tune into the radio using a radio frequency. We listen to the radio news, and it tells us the temperature in degrees. It tells us the wind speed. It tells us what's happening to inflation, what's happening to unemployment. If we're to understand who we want to vote for, we need to understand the numbers behind their tax policy, their plans for public spending. If we want to know whether our local school is working, we need to be able to interpret the performance numbers for our school. We want to choose who's going to do an operation for us. We want everything that we do in life has some numbers in it. And words are very important and emotions are vital. But if we don't understand the numbers, we're going to make a lot of very bad decisions. So in a sense, numbers really sum up all of the important issues. I think they do. I mean, they're not all that we need and almost no number is enough on its own we need a context for numbers we need to understand where they come from and we need to understand how likely they are to be right or wrong but we do need to understand them and all too often we don't take the numbers that on both sides of the atlantic we hear about all the time at the moment the the bailout packages the 700 billion dollar bailout package in the u.s the 17 billion dollar automobile industry bailout package the trillion dollar government deficit well My guess is that you know how many zeros there are in a billion, and you probably know how many there are in a trillion. But most of us don't. Most of our listeners aren't very sure what a trillion is. They've got no idea what it means, and most of the politicians, when they say it, don't know what it means either. Those kinds of numbers need cutting down to size. They need to be cut down, shared out across the whole population. So the automobile industry bailout package, $17 billion isn't an interesting way of describing it. A much better way of describing it is that's a little bit more than $50 for every person in the U.S., or it's like a dollar a week for everybody in the U.S. for a year. That makes it sound much smaller, 
And it should, because $17 billion is only one one-thousandth of the U.S.'s annual national income, because the U.S.'s annual national income is $14 trillion. But neither $14 trillion nor $17 billion means much. $50 per person is a number that you can start to get a handle on. I I think the most important thing is to try to work out how many people the number is meant to affect and then divide it by that number of people so that it becomes a number that relates to us as individuals. We're we're most of us pretty good at understanding numbers until they're bigger than the value of our house. Uh, Up to that size, we can get a grip on it. When you're thinking about how much the government's borrowing, so I think there's there's anxiety in the States at the moment about the fact the government's going to be borrowing a trillion dollars a year. Well, how do you make sense of a trillion dollars a year? The easy thing is to say, well, a trillion dollars a year is one-fourteenth of the U.S.'s annual income. Let's take somebody in the U.S. earning a very ordinary kind of income, say $56,000 a year. For somebody earning $56,000 a year, borrowing the amount that the U.S. government's going to be borrowing for the next few years would be the same as borrowing $4,000 a year. Well, we can all make sense of that. We can imagine earning $56,000 a year, and we can imagine borrowing an extra $4,000 a year. That doesn't tell us whether that amount of borrowing is good or bad, but at least it describes it to us in a way that we can understand what's going on. I think that's the task of journalism and of politics to try to help people understand what's going on rather than using numbers that are meaningless. So in a sense, trying to scale it appropriately for the average person. Absolutely. Setting it in context and making it seem personal. Our our country, even the UK, is a big country. The US is a massive country. Talking about the figures for the whole country doesn't really help, doesn't help people understand. It makes them switch off. So do you think it's sort of a failure in terms of journalists, how they cover numbers or politicians and how they present the numbers? I think it's a failure of journalism in coverage. I think it's a failure of politicians in presentation. But I also think it's a failure of all of us as, as citizens and as consumers of numbers that we, that we just allow them to be used in ways that mean nothing at all. Uh, we allow the meaning to be implied by the context. I remember a lovely or actually very annoying occasion a few months ago here in the UK where on the main evening television news on the BBC, which is a great broadcasting organization, the newscaster said, if we all, if everyone in the UK switch from high energy to low energy light bulbs, carbon dioxide emissions would fall by 5 million tons. And that was the end of, of his sentence. Well, that was completely meaningless unless you knew what carbon dioxide emissions were to start with. And that's not a number that most people know. I certainly didn't know it. It turns out that in the UK, carbon dioxide emissions are about 600 million tonnes a year. So an informative thing to have said on the news would have been, if we move from high energy to low energy light bulbs, carbon dioxide emissions would fall by a little bit less than 1%. But that wouldn't have sounded very impressive. So instead of the true and informative statement, we had a true but completely uninformative statement But most people just thought, oh, well, that's fine. That must be quite a big number. And I think the biggest revolution I'd like to see is is all of us be a bit more demanding and a bit more sceptical about the numbers that we receive all of the time. Because until consumers of numbers are angry with journalists and politicians using them badly, journalists and politicians will go on using them badly. Uh, In a sense, a lot of these numbers are sometimes just used badly to obfuscate, using large numbers to cover over a fact. Yeah. I think that happens all the time. I also think we, we see numbers being 
abused in other areas. One of those that really upsets me is in describing risk. So we, we see endless stories about how acting in a particular way doubles your risk of contracting a particular disease. Or last year across the whole of the developed world, there was a big story about how eating processed meat, and in particular bacon, increased your risk of colorectal cancer by 21%, which sounded like a big number, and people got very frightened. Yeah. Telling somebody that their risk of something increases by 21%, I could just as easily go... <laughs> for all the information there is in it. Because unless you know what the risk was to start with, you still don't know what the risk is to end up. And a much better way of describing that kind of risk story would be to say, take 100 men, five of them will contract colorectal cancer. If we increase their consumption of bacon by two slices a day throughout their adult life, that five would go up to six. That is, one of the 100 people would now contract colorectal cancer who wouldn't have done before. How can a change from 5 in 100 to 6 in 100 be the same as a 21% increase? Well, there is a 21% in there. It's the increase from 5 to 6. The one extra person who is affected is also a 21% increase in the risk. But talking about 21% sounds dramatic and people don't understand what's going on. Talking about a change from 5 in 100 to 6 in 100 isn't anything like as dramatic, but people can understand it. Some of these numbers are just used really for their shock value. I think they are. I think that's what we, that's what we do with numbers all too often. And, and let me be clear, I don't want to be critical of numbers. Numbers are marvelous, beautiful, powerful things. They're fabulous ways of describing what's going on. And they can be used to describe risks extremely clearly. They can be used to describe the size of an economy or the impact of an economic program really effectively. We just have to insist that that is how they're described. And also, one more thing that I think we're, we're bad at is recognizing the role of chance. Most numbers go up and down quite a lot just as the result of chance. Almost always, as journalists, and I count myself as a journalist here, we're guilty of over-interpreting changes in numbers, many of which are just the result of chance. So when we look at economic figures, inflation going up or down, unemployment going up or down, the oil price going up or down, we're terribly tempted to interpret every monthly figure as though it heralds a new trend. That kind of mistake can make fools of ourselves. There's a story called The Curse of Sports Illustrated. Do you talk about that in the US? The sports magazine, The Curse of Sports Illustrated is that sports women and men who get their photograph on the front cover of Sports Illustrated frequently find that immediately afterwards they get much less successful than they were when they got their photograph on. Well, that should be no surprise at all. There's a great deal of chance associated with sport, and the people who end up at the very top of the ladder who win at Flushing Meadow or win at Augusta, a large part of that will be chance that they happened to be extremely healthy that week, that their main competitor happened to have an injury of some sort, that their ball hit the pin in the, on the green and dropped into the hole when most of the time it would have shot over into the lake. It's chance that makes you really successful and gets you onto the front cover of Sports Illustrated. That chance which has made you that successful has taken you above your own real average ability. So of course what happens next is that you get less successful. It's not the curse of Sports Illustrated. It's not magic. It's just lady fate, random chance doing her job. And we should be much more aware of that than we often are. Mm. Uh, again, there are a number of interesting stories in the book. I'm curious, which one do you find sort of most egregious? 
What do I think is the very worst use of numbers? I think the thing that, that most upsets me is the abuse of the description of risk because I think it's used with health stories and health stories are the things that are probably the most important thing that affect all of our lives. And I think we systematically and deliberately frighten people through the, the description of risk wrongly. But I suppose the other thing that, that is perhaps almost ubiquitous is the misunderstanding of averages. And that really, really annoys me. Uh, we, we've not met, we haven't ever seen one another, but I'm absolutely sure that you have an above average number of feet. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure you have two feet and nobody has more than two feet and a few people are unfortunate enough through accident or congenital ill health to have fewer than two feet and that means that the average number of feet is about 1.99. It's not informative to say that you have an above average number of feet but it's true and that's the way that averages are often used. There was an example just last year in the US. I'm going to pick up uh, an example from George Bush because he happened to be the president but I can assure you there are plenty of examples of democratic presidents and Labour Party prime ministers playing the same game George Bush said that average Americans would lose $1,800, $1,800 if the tax measures that he'd already announced were not continued with by Congress well it was true in a way but only in the same sort of a way as the average number of feet is 1.99 the huge majority of Americans would have lost much less than 1800 if the tax measures that President Bush had put through had been rescinded, 80% of Americans would have lost less than $1,800. The average was only as high as $1,800 because the richest one-tenth of 1% would have lost $323,000. To describe that $1,800 as though it affected the average American was completely misleading. The American in the middle of the income distribution would have lost about $800 from it. It was a, an appalling use of average to imply the typical, when in fact it wasn't anything about the typical. It, w it would have been about massive losses for a small group. I'm saying nothing about whether the, that, that those losses would have been good or bad, just that it was a terrible way of describing them. So sometimes averages are, are used in place of a, a median number, which actually would be more informative. Absolutely. But even a median number won't be terribly informative if the range of of effects is very, very dispersed. Mm. Part of the trouble is that numbers can be really, really good at summarizing complicated things, but if what they're trying to summarize is genuinely diverse, then summaries won't be very good summaries, and we are, I think, not wary enough of trying to summarize complicated reality. Mm. What do you think are some recommendations for both the presenters of these numbers and consumers of numbers to actually improve how these uh, numbers are actually talked about? Well, I th the summary would be to remember that context is everything. To understand a number, you have to have the context. But there are some tricks. One is always cut the number down to size. Uh, always remember that counting is quite difficult. It, it's nice and neat in principle, but in practice, it's pretty difficult. Remember chance. Remember that averages can be confusing. Remember that if you want to tell somebody what's happened to a risk, you have to tell them where it started as well as how much it went up by. Remember as well that sampling is how we get almost all of our numbers. Perhaps this is one last thought about public sector numbers. We easily imagine that the numbers that we read in the news every day are the result of people actually going out and counting. We don't even count the population except once every 10 years. We certainly don't go out and count 
every single bit of output for an economy like the US. We base our estimates of gross domestic product of the size of the economy on samples. We base our ideas of inflation, of unemployment, of investment, of imports, of exports, all of these things on samples. And the way in which those samples are taken is crucial in determining how accurate the numbers actually are. And an awful lot of numbers that we hear about what people do and don't like, how they do and don't behave, are based on really rather small samples, not taken very scientifically. And often those numbers, which fill the newspapers in the UK and I think do in the US, are not really worth the newsprint that they're written with. And in some sense, it's sort of maybe a misunderstanding on the part of a lot of people about what some statistics mean. I think there is. I think there's a sense on the part of many people that they simultaneously feel inadequate in the face of numbers. They feel they're not good at math, they they don't like numbers, they're not good with them. And at the same time, anybody who uses a number in any statement they think is terribly clever and speaking something that is absolutely true. So if I make a stupid statement without a number in it, then most people would realize I've said something stupid. But if I make the identical statement but stick a number in the middle of it, then people will tend to think I may well be right. And that's something that I think we all have to get over, that we need to remember that being able to cope with numbers doesn't mean you have to have a degree in mathematics. Being able to cope with numbers just means taking a little bit of time to think about where the number came from, what the right context is for it, and whether we really think that the number sounds right. If we did a bit more of that, then we'd probably all come to love numbers some more and be a bit better informed. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, this certainly is a very fascinating book. Uh, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some final words regarding the whole issue of numbers. I suppose my final word would be learn a few things about the economy and society you live in, and you'll find that you can make the numbers come alive for you. Learn how big the national economy is, what national income is. Learn what the population of your economy is. Learn what average income really is. So for the U.S., $14 trillion is national income. There are 300 million of you, and average income spread across the whole population is about $50,000. Learn a few things like that and compare the numbers you hear on the news to those, and you'll begin to feel that you're understanding much more about what's going on. Well, certainly good advice and certainly a very fascinating book. Uh, the new book, again, is called The Numbers Game, The Common Sense Guide to Understanding Numbers in the News, in Politics, and in Life. Uh, Mr. Dilnot, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And you were just listening to Mr. Andrew Dilnot discussing The Numbers Game. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Ready to play the game? Rocketron 5000. 
It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic from the title of your BBC4 show, More or Less. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you'd like to see more of them or less of them, and maybe a little reason why. Mr. Dillnott, ready to play the game? Yep. Okay, here we go. Person number one, more or less, pop idol judge Simon Cowell. Well, would I like to see more or less of Simon Cowell? I think I'd like to see more of Simon Cowell as long as he started using some slightly more sophisticated numbers in his analysis. Because my understanding of pop idol is they just say yes or no. I'd like to see more of him if he gave a score in numbers out of 10 for each of the people on his program. Let's really uh, make it a little more quantitative. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Number four is the uh, soccer star, David Beckham. Now, I confess I'd like to see a little bit less of David Beckham because, although I sound English, I am in fact Welsh. Mm. (laughs) And having grown up in Wales, rugby union is the sport I love, and I feel that I see much too much soccer and not enough rugby. So uh, on that basis, I'd like to see less of Mr. Beckham. All right. Uh, Number three is your Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Now, I'd like to see... more of Gordon Brown saying that he's good with numbers and that numbers really matter. Early on in his time as Prime Minister, Mr. Brown said jokingly, and as a way of, I think, trying to make it sound as though he was just one of the people, he said, of course, I'm not very good with numbers. Well, he's pretty good with numbers. He was the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, that's being like the uh, head of the Treasury. And even if he's not very good with numbers, and in fact he is, I don't like people in positions of power and authority making it sound as though being good with numbers is a bad thing. No senior politician would dream of saying, oh, I'm not very good at reading. Uh, no senior politician should say, oh, I'm not very good at numbers. So I'd like to see more of Mr. Brown telling us that mathematics is great. I'd like to see him encouraging mathematics teachers in our schools and encouraging young people to realize that being good at mathematics is cool. Indeed, indeed. Uh, number four is the uh, current star of Doctor Who, David Tennant. Well, I'm quite keen on seeing less of David Tennant because I, I confess to being frightened by Doctor Who. I'm now <laughs> 48, but when I was a little boy, aged five or six in the 1960s, I can remember hiding behind the chairs in my parents' sitting room while Doctor Who and the Daleks was on the television and the theme tune of Doctor Who, which I shan't sing to you because my daughters laugh when I sing, but the theme tune of Doctor Who still makes my heart race and makes me want to hide behind somebody's chair. All right. Uh, And finally, number five, it's uh, the new president of the United States, Barack Obama. (laughs) Um, Well, I would like to see more of Barack Obama, not least because I was unfortunate enough to be away on a business trip on the day that the election results were announced. And so by the time I got free, everything had already happened. And so I didn't get to feel that I was a part of what felt like a historic occasion, certainly to those on this side of the water. I think people in the UK feel somewhat separated from the political Democratic versus Republican debate, but saw the election of Barack Obama as as really rather an exciting development and a sign of the vigor and innovativeness of the U.S. and and just a delight to see a black American elected as president, regardless of his or her political opinions. It it felt like an exciting moment for the the whole world, and I'm looking forward to it as a sign of the way the world is moving on. 
Uh, well, uh, Mr. Dillon, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. And, and of course, uh, again, talking about your book, which is The Numbers Game, The Common Sense Guide to Understanding Numbers in the News, in Politics, and in Life. Thank you again for your time. Great. Talk to you. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.